10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning, you're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 22nd of May and we have a stellar show lined up for you today. Steve Wilkes is back discussing interview and application tips and we'll also be discussing how to prepare for headship. There's lots of useful information today to help support you in your next role. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag... Sorry about that. My finger pressed the button too early. That was hashtag at TT Radio 2022. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so. Okay, my first guest today is Steve Wilkes. Steve has spent his entire teaching career in three large outer London mixed comprehensive schools in Barking and Dagenham and Redbridge and has over 30 years experience as a senior leader. Steve was appointed as head teacher of Oaks Park High School in Redbridge in January 2001 and under his leadership Oaks Park has grown into a successful 11 to 18 mixed comprehensive and sixth form. He has led the school through three Ofsted inspections, with the last one being outstanding. Steve is now involved in mentoring a number of head teachers taking up their first appointment. He is a leadership coach for future leaders and has completed seven headship interviews this term alone, including deputy headship interviews, and is working across a number of boroughs now. Steve, welcome to the show. How's things since been since we last spoke? Yeah, good morning, Serbia. Um... Yeah, very busy. I'm still doing quite a lot of different projects and uh, really enjoying what I'm doing. Okay, that's great. Now, Steve, you have um, a huge amount of experience because obviously you are training um, people who are taking up their first post in headship. Can you just explain to us um, what experience did you have before actually applying for the first headship that you went for? Yeah, I think um, what you've got to remember as well is things were very different. So that was quite quite a long time ago now. But I think one of the most important experiences that I had was um, obviously I spent quite a long time as a deputy head. And you, you mentioned the fact that I worked in uh, two different London boroughs. I was a deputy head in two different local authorities. So I was a deputy head at Robert Clack in Dagnum. And when I was a deputy head at Robert Clack in Dagnum, um, I had quite unique experience whereby I was asked to set up a sixth form consortium and that consisted of four schools in Barking and Dagnum 
And as part of that, on a monthly basis, all the four head teachers met and I had to coordinate that. So on a monthly basis, I got to meet four head teachers and that was an absolutely fascinating time and gave me some real experience for when I took up headship because I saw four people who yeah. did their job in very different ways. And then I went on to Bill and worked in Bill for three years as a deputy head. Um, I was in Redbridge and again worked under another head. So I had a lot of experience as a deputy head, head and also I did the MPQH as well. So I had that sort of theoretical basis, although at that time I wouldn't say the MPQH was what it is now. And so one of my one of the things that I've been thinking about, because I have people asking me questions all the time as well, the younger teachers. When you are preparing for headship, is it essential to have an MPQH these days? Well, uh, what I would say is to look on the person specification for each school and that will tell you whether they say it's essential because when you're applying for a post, you need to meet the criteria on the person specification. If I'm involved in the process at all, I advise people not to make it essential but desirable. Um, so I would say it's not essential, but a lot of people have got it. So if you're competing with them, a lot of your competitors will have it. Okay. And when you when you applied for headship, when did you know you were ready? Because I've had um, conversations with another leadership coach um, and it'd be really interesting to hear from your point of view when you knew you were ready. Well, I, th I think unfortunately the answer to that is I'm not sure you ever know that you're ready because I think it is a big step from a deputy headship to a headship. But I think what I would say is that is that once you get to senior leadership, if after a while you keep thinking that I would have done the, I would have made decisions that are different to the person you're working for. And when you've been operating at a deputy head level for a while, I think you get the feeling that perhaps you can do the job. So, you know, working alongside a head, even with good heads, you, you will find that you'll do things differently to them. And I think after a period of time, you perhaps start to think you know, you can do the job. So I don't think there's ever a set time period. I think it's all to do with context and who you're working with uh, and where you're applying to. But after a while, you start to think that you could do the job differently to the person who's doing it. And what made you want to be a head teacher? Well, uh, again, the bad news for you, I don't think I ever sort of set out on the road when I started teaching to say that I wanted to be a head teacher. Um, as part of my career progression, I was a head of sixth form and I absolutely loved that job. And I thought that, you know, but then you get opportunities to move on. And I think it's once you become a deputy head, as I said, that was the sort of time where I thought that perhaps I could do the job. You obviously have reservations. You think you've got gaps in your knowledge, uh, gaps in your skills, but you start to think that possibly I could do the job. And so how did you form your philosophy of education? How did you know what kind of school you wanted to lead? Well, you know, right from the start, I always wanted to work in a comprehensive school because, I, you know, I, I came through eventually through a comprehensive school. I started in a grammar school. So I wanted to work in a good comprehensive school. And my firm belief was that it should be a school that served the local community. So I wasn't interested in going to a school where they... 
perhaps at that time, you know, we were talking about specialist schools and they took 10% of their intake from somewhere. I wanted to, to, to work in a school that served the local community. So, so that was the basis of where I wanted to work, a comprehensive school that was interested in serving the local community. And so in your <clears throat> preparing for headship mode, how did you do your research on the school? Because sometimes, you know, people rely on reputation and that's not enough, is it? No. Um, and also, I think, I think that the research I did when I was applying for the job is, is very different from the research I would expect people to do now. The big difference is, of course, there is so much information about schools in the public domain. So, um, you know, the, you, you can go into performance tables, you've got Ofsted reports. When I was applying for headship, those things weren't available in the public domain. So there's a lot of information now. So if you're applying now, one of the things I would say to you, whatever level you're applying for, there really is no excuse for not knowing the school. When, <clears throat> when I was applying, you know, back in the, you know, the 1990s, late 1990s, you were relying on the prospectus you received in the post from the school. Um, and, and of course, there's two things I would say. If you're applying particularly for a headship or if you're applying for any job at any school, is if you can go and visit, I think that's really important. And secondly, just talk to as many people as you can, people who know the school, people whose opinions you can trust, you know, inevitably you create a network of people, they will know somebody at the school, get talking to people who are at that school to get some sort of inside information about the sort of school you're applying to. But, but it is really, really important you do your research. And in terms of planning a visit, I mean, I've obviously done that before uh, as well when I'm looking for senior leadership posts. What if the school says you're not able to come in for a visit? Because I have had that experience and maybe it was because of COVID that that was happening. But should schools be refusing visits right now? Well, I think, yeah, again, obviously you've had the COVID issue. There may be other issues whereby schools are quite short-staffed. But when in all the headship interviews I do, I, I, I say to the school, look, you've got to make time for visits and it's really helpful, you know, if you can get someone to, to organise a visit, even if it's in a group of people, because people need to see the sorts of school they're working in. So I, I would always raise a question mark if you can't go and visit the school, because then you've got to pick up your information on the day. And even on the day, that they won't necessarily give you a, a walk around the school first thing before you actually start the interview process. So I would try and go bef beforehand. Even if you can't have a visit to the school, drive around the school and just observe the way the students leave the school or come into the school. Uh, but you've got, to, you've got to try, if you can, to visit the school. And obviously, when you're at a headship level, you're you're thinking strategically. You're thinking at a different. You're thinking from a different angle. What should you be looking out for as a head? And what kind of questions should you be asking staff and students? Because presumably, you're you're now going in from a different level, and so therefore, you're going to be thinking in a different way. Yeah, I think when when you're going in to, to, to visit for a headship level, but again, a lot of this will apply to any sort of senior leadership post. 
you get a feel for the school as soon as you walk through the door. So the way you're treated at reception, I think is important because that tells you a lot about the culture of the school. The way the students react to you as you're walking around the school is important as well. And as you're walking around the school, if you get an opportunity to go into lessons to actually see what is going on in those lessons, all of that, all of that sort of is good information for you as you're applying for headship. If you're going round, obviously it might be a guided tour, so that will be different. But if it is a, a more open tour, um, you know, s sometimes it might be that students take you round if a school is really brave. Um, you just ask, uh, and also as you are going round, if you can ask as many questions as you can to students and staff, just to get a feel what they what they think it's like being a member of staff at that school what what it's like for them to be a student at that school to get some idea of the sort of experience they have on a day-to-day -day basis because that is going to be good information for you as you go into an interview uh, and obviously if you're successful how you set about going about the post and so in terms of um when you're making a decision we're going to come to the interview process in a bit um the yeah. cv application interview process yeah. when you're looking for aligned values because this is quite common um and a lot of senior leaders have discussed this with me in the past as well what if you end up taking on a role you've been successful in your interview you've been successful everything looks good on paper um on the day everything looked perfect or the two days that you were there um and then for example you get a report that comes in and you realize it's not in the good position that you thought it was or the way that it was sold to you how how should people be dealing with that well it, it obviously depends depends on what the issues are and I, and I think going back I think it's really important that you try and establish before you go in that's why it's important to do your research because if you get in there and uh, the job is not what it seems that is obviously going to make your job a lot more difficult and you may have some difficult decisions to make if i can give you one or two examples of course one in particular uh, and again if you are going to into a headship and i think this is really really important is that uh, and, and not all people do this is you need to try and find out about the financial position of the school so yes. you will go on to the dfe as a financial benchmarking website because i have known heads who have taken up a post and suddenly find that the financial position is not what they thought it was or, or whether yes. they've even asked about it and then they have to make some quite difficult decisions you know going possibly and in their first year they're making staff redundant and that's not a great start to a headship so you need to find out about the financial position and as you said the, the other things yeah, uh, and that is something that is really hard to deal with uh, and there may be other more serious things that you pick up that that weren't apparent in the interview and you you know some of those you know, there, there are other type of things that come up but but obviously once you're there these difficult decisions whatever they are you've then got to try and manage those so it may not be what you thought it was but that's going to be a test of your ability to deal with them um yeah i mean i i've said that all the time to the people that i'm i'm working with that you shouldn't really jump out of the frying pan into the fire sometimes because sometimes you could be in a school thinking that it's not so good and then you can end up in a in a leadership role which is um you know in a sense you have to make much tougher decisions yeah. and then obviously you you get put in certain positions and 
with financial mismanagement, one of the things that I've had struggled, well, one of the things that I've struggled to understand is that presumably, like you said, when you get up to headship level, you have to have some sort of CPD and training to get there. Why, why is it that we are still having schools that are badly managed financially? Well, well, unfortunately, in, in some cases, the, the, the answer is because the governors don't fully understand um, the, the financial management of the school. So that's certainly one of the cases uh, the governors didn't understand the extent of the deficit. So if they're not well governed, then I think that that is an issue. And, and obviously, another factor when you're applying for the headship is a key relationship is between you and the chair of governors if you're in a local authority or you and the trust board if you're in a trust. So, so they're key relationships and there are other things that you need to take into account when you're applying for the post, etc. If I could give you some examples though, um, certainly when I first started applying for headship and, and I felt I need to apply for a headship and, and I wasn't very strategic in my applications and I made a couple of really bad mistakes, I think. And what you just said there about, you know, going from the frying pan in the fire. Well, it wasn't the frying pan where I was, but, you know, if you're eager and want to get onto a headship, as I did, I think it's really important that you're strategic. The first school job I went to, I made a couple of basic errors. First of all, um, I'd, I'd been to that area quite regularly on a Saturday and it took me 45 minutes. So I thought this journey's manageable. On the day of the interview, it took me an hour and 40. So there's a there's an obvious lesson there. And when I got to the school, the, the school was awful. Uh, and a key lesson from that is if you get to a school and it's not the right school for you, you need to withdraw from the process and don't allow them to take you through the process and put you in a position as they are. You know, if a school is very keen on you and wants you to be head, it might be that they try and talk you through the process and put you into yeah. post. So it's really important that, that if you don't want that score, if it's not the right score for you, that you withdraw your application, which I did at that first one. But I did it on okay. day two because I thought, I want, can I withdraw? I'm applying for a headship. Can I? And, I? and I really didn't think, you know, I didn't think that thing through at those, that stage. Now, you've just said that was on day two. Um, do you think we still need two or three days for senior appointments? Right. Isn't it a waste of everyone's time yeah. having this um, for so long? Right. Um, at headship level, I would say you do need two days. Now, some of the, the first, I think the first, once, once I'd retired and started doing headship interviews, the first one I did was three days, actually. So, uh, and there were a few three day ones. And, um, but I think two days is a set. They're not in effect. They're not two days. The majority of ones I do now are are one and a half days in effect because day one is really your shortlisted candidates. And I normally, when I'm involved in, I would recommend that they don't take more than six because it it becomes a very long and exhausting day for everyone concerned. So six is the maximum. Four to me is more ideal. And then. What you need to do on day two is to, and I would say to the people that I'm working with, on day two, you need to have every single question answered from this candidate to ensure that they are the right person to lead your school. So on day two, hopefully there will be two or possibly three where you ask them to give a presentation normally and you really question every aspect of them to ensure that at the end of that day two, that person is right to lead your school.
And so um, a few um, senior leaders on Twitter have started tweeting out and saying that they now give questions in advance to interviewees because it makes them more prepared for the interview. Do you think that would be appropriate at headship level? Um, I've never done that. Um, and to be quite honest as well, you, yeah, I think the questions on the day are really useful and it because it gives you, you know, if you give questions out beforehand to, to prepare, you can obviously get lots of people to help you prepare them. But on the day, if you're asking questions, uh, I think it gives you a chance to see how they react in certain situations and gives you a chance to probe them in more detail. So I'm not sure that I'll be in favour of giving questions out in advance. You might give broad area, you know, topic areas out in advance. I've got no, no issue with that. But I think you do want some opportunity on the day um, to see uh, how people react and respond to uh, situations that they're put into. Okay, so let's move on to the letter of application now and writing um, a personal statement. Um, some schools ask for CVs and letters of applications and some schools ask for an application form with a personal statement. Can you just give examples of what you should be thinking about when writing, a, writing any of those? Right, yeah, first of all, they shouldn't ask for CVs. It should be a letter of application so that you can actually ensure that all your safeguarding issues are covered and that you've got a detailed chronology of the applicants who are applying. Um, right, okay, so the application form. First of all, um, there, there will be the, the letter, there will be the application form which, which you have to put detail in, which, which is a factual record of what you've done. But the, the first part I would say there is look, there's a little box there that says, you know, recent courses. Now in there, to me, I look at that and that tells me how that person has prepared for the role that they're applying for. So if you're a head, if you're doing a, if you're applying for a headship, there might be the MPQH in there. There might be some other courses that people have done that are relevant to headship. Some people fill that box up with courses that really are not relevant to headship. So, you know, a second, you know, a, a, a first aid qualification might be useful, but it's not really the thing that is going to be relevant to your headship qualification or writing down every single inset day in school. So that box is about how have you prepared yourself for headship? That's really important. Then the letter of application is absolutely key. Now, again, what happens in the ones that I'm involved with, I, I ask, I, I say to governors, just tell them they've got to limit it to two sides of A4, because I did have one recently that was seven sides of A4. Now, if you get 20 people applying, I know that would be a lot, but you're asking governors to read through quite often in a short period of time, 140 pages, well, they're not going to do it. So it should be two sides of A4. What you should have avoided is a life history of what you've done because that's already in your application form. So what I would be looking for is you need to look at the person specification and in your two sides of A4, you need to cover what is needed in the person specification. That is really key because if the governors do the shortlisting panel, they will judge it against the person spec and score it against the person specification. 
So you need to do two sides of A4 against the person specification. A couple of other tips to always give them. In the first paragraph, write a really strong paragraph about why you want to apply for that school. And also, you know, uh, and perhaps, it, you know, the values of that school are aligned with you, some of the things you've said already. So it's not about you're ready for a promotion. It's about you want to apply for that school that really appeals to you. You've got to address the person specification. In that two sides, you've got to show the impact of some of the things that you've done. And, and also, it needs to be tailored to that school. I can give you examples of the, the letter of application where they've got the name of the school wrong. And that happens because they're applying to a number of schools, but you do need to change the letter of application to ensure it's geared towards that school. Otherwise, it, you've just wasted your time writing it, really. So in terms of like when you are meeting the person's specification, yep. what process, because I've heard of the STAR process that, you know, obviously outside of education that people use, should we be following that format or should people be following that format when they're actually preparing for well, interviews? No, I was, yeah. Uh, for application form, sorry. Yeah, on the application form, I always say to people, the three key things on there, this is a simpler piece that I give them. You know, what have you done? what impact has it had and how can you apply it to your new school so for example i've been head of sixth form for the last five years now that in itself doesn't say anything but if you say that during my time as head of sixth form attendance has improved by such and such results have improved by such and such and possibly then give examples of some of the things that you've done that you could apply to the new school so i talk about you know what you've done impact and relating it to the new school and i always say that when you've done the two sides go through it at the end read it how many times have you mentioned the school you're applying to is it really an application to that school or is it any sort of application so it's really got to be tailored to that school even though it may take you a bit more time and even though at this time of year you might be applying for three or four jobs it needs to be tailored to that school to give you a better chance so um so what you're saying is uh, when you, you know the bit where you're talking about what's the impact and then applying that to the yeah. new school can yep. you give us an example of a sentence or a, a paragraph that you might say uh, you know would be a good example of something that you would write for that school well well yeah you know you know if you think about some of the things that you've done in your job as i said you know if you've been responsible say for pupil premium so in my role as pupil premium coordinator, I've introduced a number of different initiatives, give a couple of examples, and then use one of those examples. You know, if you've done something within that initiative that has been successful, you can then add how you might be able to apply that to the new school. It wouldn't necessarily work, but you know, it could be something that you would explore working in that new school. Um, and in terms of the interview process, now, um, for headship level, how many parts are there to an interview? Right. Can you give us examples of the tasks? Yeah, absolutely. Right. The problem is here, of course, uh, you go to, uh, I, can give you, I could give you about 10 different things that will happen on an interview day uh, for a headship. Schools will choose different ones from this list according to you know what they think is most appropriate so but there, there will be some form of interview on that day um, it's likely there'll be a student panel because they want to see how you react to the students 
it might be that there's they ask you to do a lesson observation and you can either feed back to the teacher or feed back to the panel. It might be they ask you to do an assembly. There may be a, a variety of different types of written exercises. I've also things, things uh, you know, a goldfish bowl exercise where you're given a topic to discuss amongst everyone who's there on the day and that is being observed. So there's a, there's a long list of different type of activities that people um, can be asked to do on day one. I'm going to stop you there for a minute, Steve, because I just want to go through a few things, if that's okay. So, you know, so, you know, the student panel. Yeah. Now, as far as I can remember in teaching, when I've gone to interviews, there's always been student panels as well. But there was this big, massive debate debate on Twitter where teachers are now saying that they don't like student panels and that it's um, it's it's humiliating for staff to be having student panel interviews what are your thoughts on that no i think i think it's i think it's important to you know and i've been on a few of these i don't tend to normally sit on them when i do the interviews but i've been on a couple of them and i think they're they're valuable in us in the way in which i think the uh, applicants talk to the students and i think the students can give you quite a good insight into and pass on their feelings. I think what is really, really important is that whoever is organising the process tells the students or any other group that are involved in the interviews that this is only part of the process. And just because they think candidate X should get the post, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you do find people who are really good with student panels but are not necessarily the right person for the school. But I do think it... It's just one activity. Uh, and what I, I think about a headship interview is, is you have a range of activities, you have a range of people involved, and then you're getting a lot of information on that candidate, seeing how they perform in a number of different situations that's going to help you make your decision because it's not easy on either side. For you as a, a prospective applicant, is this the right school for you? And for them, are they the right person to lead your school? And thank you for that. And the other thing is observations. Now, you just said that heads will be asked to give um, examples of, sorry, heads would be asked to observe somebody and give feedback on a teacher who they're observing. I think that's what you said, right? Well, I think there's various different ways of doing this. And if I just give you a couple of examples of the way I've seen it. Uh, First of all, one of the ones I've done is, is to get the candidate to observe a teacher then you sit down and um, give the uh, the person who's on the interview, you give them five minutes to feed back to the teacher. And that's really, really interesting because I did that last year in a school in Surrey and there were four, four uh, head teacher applicants and I watched all four feedbacks. Two of them coached the teacher, two of them told them how they should have done it. So you get a direct difference in style. The other way of doing it is, as I've done more recently, is take all the four candidates, say spend an hour observing some maths lessons, and then for each candidate in turn, just to feed back to the panel what they've seen. So they're not feeding back to the teacher, they're feeding back to the panel what they've seen. But it is useful, I think, some of those activities. You know, It's useful for the 
candidate to be able to get into lessons to see what the lessons are like and it's useful for the panel to see you know because I walk around with them and are they seeing what I've seen so so I think that is quite a useful exercise an important part of the process and so my next question is that presumably when you get to head headship level at that stage you should be a good or outstanding teacher or whatever you you should be um confident in your teaching um and you should be up to date with best practice and with the latest pedagogy but I have to ask you, Steve, sometimes you do get heads who get into positions and they're not up to date with the latest pedagogy. So how do we how do we resolve that, that no, conflict? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And if they're not up to date, they need to have people around them who are, because I think one of the things about headship is you've got to understand your own limitations. So where I felt I was limited, I made sure I had good people in post who could give me good advice on what I should be doing. I think that's part of the role of headship. But you could go and, you know, I went, I've been into a lot of lessons in the last two weeks and you can make some, some judgments about things that are going on in those lessons. Um, and I don't think that is too difficult to do. You know, you can see straight away whether the students are engaged with the teacher. You can look at books to see what's happening during the course of the lessons. You can see whether they the teacher, you know, what sort of questioning the teacher is using to get the best from the students. So you could, it, it's quite, it's quite interesting. You know, I've not, I'm not an Ofsted inspector and never wanted to be one, but it's interesting when you go into five maths lessons, uh, all from the same year group, how, you know, straight away you get a chance to see whether there's a consistency of practice across them. Yeah. Agreed. And um, you mentioned assemblies as well. Uh, in terms of assemblies, are, are they given topics in advance? Yeah, well, I've done one quite recently and, and normally they will give them a topic in advance to deliver. And it's just really that, that sort of test is just can they stand up in front of a, you know, a group of students, command the attention of a group of students? You know, can they deliver their message clearly? Are they confident? Have they got engagement with the students? So again, I, I have seen that. And uh, yeah, it's just a question of some of these things are organisational things. I wasn't on it, but someone told me about an interview where you've had you know, six candidates and they're all doing a 10-minute assembly. Well, of course, by the time you get round to the sixth one and it's the same group of students, it's probably not the same test as when it was the first one. Yeah. And in terms of you mentioned written exercises, so I'm just going to jump a, a, a bit forward here. Obviously, you get an in-tray exercise and you get yep. a data task. Yep. What? How should people be preparing for that? What's the best way and what kind of things might come up? Right. So, so if you're what, what you're prepared with an in-tray exercise, it, it's normally that they'll give you six or seven things. And I'm not a great lover of these, to be quite honest, because there's no right or wrong answer. And, and, and they don't, if a candidate is reasonably competent, they can do it. But they, they just put things in there like, you know, uh, your finance manager has sent you a thing saying, we've got, a, you know, a, an overspend this month. You've had a letter from a parent coming. So it just gives you a range of different things. And you've just got to try and order them. In priority, uh, and the priority normally is if there's a safeguarding incident, that obviously is your number one priority and some of the other things can be left. So those sort of uh, in-tray exercises about how you respond 
uh, and the fact that you can't do everything yourself. So it's looking at your delegation and what you consider the most important. The data task obviously involves two, two things, really. Oh, it's often looking at that you can pull out from the data groups or, of underachieving students and things like that. And can you put in, in an action plan to actually change that to make those students, you know, improve the outcomes for those students? Now, my view is when we've done these before and uh, and a couple of ones I've done recently have been scenario questions. So, you know, you've got an issue, say, with a parent coming in and how you would de deal with it, something like that. So scenario questions. But from my point of view, from all the evidence I've seen, that those written exercises don't tend to dis uh, differentiate between the candidates anywhere like where the interview does. So I think it's the if I had to you know, talk to people, I say you can prepare for these and you will get them because they want to see that there's a basic level of competence achieved, but the main differentiation is your performance in the interview. And um, also there's normally a presentation or there yep. can be an activity like a presentation. Yep. What kind of things, because I remember, obviously, as a middle leader, I've had middle leader presentations that yeah. I've had to give. But are they similar to that or is well, it a different standard? No, well, I think if you're taking on a headship post, you, you've got a key strategic role. You know, you've got a really important role in determining how you're going to take the school forward. So a lot of the ones I've seen, they want to see about your views on how the school is going to develop. Uh, and I think there are some bad mistakes that I've seen on those presentations. Now, my guidance or, or, or best thoughts about presentation is often, you know, it is timed. And the reason it's timed is to make it fair to all candidates because if you just have a just say do a presentation some will talk for 10 minutes some will talk for 25 so you've got to try and make it put it in a structure of a day and see if they can respond to an activity within within the time that you've set them so so my advice and quite often you'll have slides there uh, you can do, so, so, although some governing bodies say that you do it without any uh, technology so, uh, because that makes it easier for them but sometimes they feel that people look at the slides rather than the content of them but if you are doing it on, on slides just five slides with not too much on each because unfortunately again I did an interview last year where it was 10 minutes someone had 10 slides and after eight minutes they were on slide two so and so that just ruined the presentation really so just you know if you're doing 10 minutes five slides two minutes a slide that is your presentation with you know four or five key points that you're trying to get over to the the panel and then possibly leave them you know with a handout or give them a handout so they've got the key things in front of them as they're looking back over what they've done during the course of the day but those presentations are an opportunity to say you know, you know, is this person confident, you know, do we have confidence in this person to lead our school? And it's your opportunity as the candidate to put forward what you think are the key things in terms of the development of the school that you're taking over.
And I'm going to I'm going to put the cat amongst the pigeons here, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, not every school is outstanding. So no. what if you go into a school, give your presentation and all your ideas and they still don't hire you, but they take your ideas? Well, yeah, that, <laughs> that's one of the good things. You get four lots of ideas, you know. Well, that, 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 that's reality, isn't it? You, you, you know, when you go... It's like so. Whenever you go into another school, so I, I, I go in, I go into. I must have been into thirty or forty, fifty schools over the past year now. Whenever you go into a school, you get ideas, uh, and so you know. Don't forget, you may not be successful in the post of headship, and I've got some advice about that as well. But but it's, it works both ways because you've spent two days in a school, and you'll get you'll get a lot of ideas to take back to your own school. They'll get ideas from you, but you will as well. Okay, so um, can you just outline for us? I know you did it very uh, briefly and you told us the kind of activities, but can you just give us a structure of an example? It doesn't have to be every school, just one school, an example of what a two-day interview process would look like. Right, so first of all, yeah, so so some of the ones, if we concentrate on some of the ones that I've been involved in uh, yes. and some of the activities I like, there's certain activities I don't particularly like, so uh, I try and... Um, so I try and let's go back before they actually get there. So what I encourage schools to do, encourage them to get offer times for interviews to try and get everyone to come round, but tell the governors quite clearly that please don't take it as a, you know, a mark against someone who doesn't go on a tour because there may be compelling reasons for that. Um, but they will want to know who's been on the tour. So try and get people to go on the tour. I encourage now as well, um, the chair of governors to make themselves available for a conversation with the candidate beforehand. So by the time they get there, hopefully then everyone has had a tour at a school because we don't really want to spend time on those days when we're trying to assess the candidates giving a tour at a school. So if they haven't had a tour at a school, I do encourage you know time during the course of the day for them to go around and have a look at stuff. So... So hopefully they get there on day one, haven't had a tour of the school and haven't had the opportunity to talk to the chair of governors if they wish. So we start the day just meeting all the governing body panel. And then perhaps the way I would do it is, or, or let's take an example of a recent one, starting them all off with a learning walk. So you go into a learning walk and um, they spend an hour uh, walking around different lessons and they will have a sheet with them recording stuff um, on that sheet as to what they've seen. I then collect that all in because that is going to be used later in the day. And, and I want to try and make it as fair as possible to the candidates and ensure that some don't have more time than others. Then what I've done is create, I normally have a couple of panels and split the governing body into two and have one panel um, on leadership and management because that's the key aspect of the post and another panel on um, other aspects of the role. I then would have a student panel and I would then have space for a couple of written exercises during the course of the day. At lunchtime, you can do a couple of things. You can either get them to meet other staff and or you can let them circulate around the school, whatever. The other thing that I've sometimes done, but it's dependent on circumstances, is at the end of the day, I've given them five minutes each 
to talk to the whole staff or the staff who want to be there. But some of these activities I will change around a little bit if there's an internal candidate. So that is quite important as well to try and make it fair to all candidates. So in summary, you've got a structure. I would start off with a learning walk. Um, then, a comp then they will move from different panels, the leadership and management, the other governance panel, the student panel, the written exercises. I then give them a chance to feedback their learning walk to all members of the panel. Uh, at the end of the day, I give them, say, five minutes to feedback to the governors, ask any final questions, and then the governors will then make the selection of their candidates for the following day. That evening, they will get a call to say they've been invited back and given a presentation task for the following day. And the following day, I would just then have a presentation task with another set of questions. And those set of questions I would put together with the governors at the end of day one, saying, where are the areas where you still feel concerned about? And we will put questions in directed at that. So that's a brief, but they can be very, very different. So, but they're the way in which I would organize some of these things. And so that's the, uh, that's the interview process. My question is, um, how would we find out about um, a head teacher's other skills? So, for example, leadership skills. So, presumably, you know, they're going to be involved in things like disciplinaries. They're going to be involved in things like employment law and legal frameworks that they need to know. Uh, how, you know, things like moral development, diversity, equity, inclusion. How do you, do you actually have those things tested at an interview stage or does it come through different avenues well, how does well, that work yes yeah, so so through the interview stage through the leadership management questions you would try and ask all the sorts of questions covering all the areas that head might you know encounter in headship and there, there will be questions like disciplinary you know capability stuff like that also i forgot sometimes i do give them a you know they have a separate budget exercise and some governors are really keen to ensure that the head has a good understanding of the budget, particularly nowadays where I think a lot of schools are finding it very difficult financially. So there might be a separate budget exercise. But the idea of those two panels is to look at all the head teacher standards and in those two panels cover the whole range of questions that you would want to ask a head regarding their suitability for the post. Uh, and presumably that would include difficult conversations, the leadership Absolutely. style, what the principles are as well. And, um, okay, so a, a question that, um, you know, I think is important. Sometimes you get recruitment consultants coming up to you. And as a head teacher, because it's such a lucrative role at that position, um, should you go through recruitment consultants or should you consider just going through the normal process of applying directly to schools? Um, yeah, again, um, I, I, it's really, I think, your own personal preference. I think that there are lots, lots of jobs out there now for you to look through. It might be that you're the sort of person who gives your name a recruitment consultant, they go and find a job for you. But I think the majority of people who I speak to would go through uh, their own applications to schools uh, and would have an alert on their phone so that a sort of job comes up that they're interested in. They make an application. You know, uh, obviously, 
when I was applying, well, not obviously, but I never went through a recruitment consultant. But there are some people that would do that. Um, you know, I think it, it's, it's your preference, really. And obviously, you have to be careful with that as well. If you are going yeah. to a recruitment consultant, you have to look at terms and conditions properly. Absolutely, because yeah. um, obviously, then it comes into lots of legal frameworks uh, in terms of yeah. pay and conditions yeah. and things like that as well. Now, you know, let's just suppose um, you're a deputy head and you'd be working in a school and you know your 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 school is slightly behind the times it's not up to date with the latest pedagogy and stuff like that should that deter you from making that first headship application or should you just work on you know improving your cpd externally from outside the school no 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 so so i've got people you know work with who are deputy heads and, and you asked a question right at the start about how do you get yourself ready for you know for for headship and um, I think it doesn't matter what type of school you work in, but obviously certain schools will give you more opportunities than other schools. And, you know, and so I think as a deputy head, you've got to try and make an assessment of where you are. And I always say to people that who are deputy heads, you know, you, you're thinking of applying for head, where do you think you need to work on? And then you think how you're going to, to cover that. So for instance, you know, the example you're giving, you're saying it's more difficult within your own school then it might be that you need some sort of external input into that. And it might be that, you know, the MPQH might provide you with that because part of that you go into a placement. Um, it might be that there's some other things that you could do um, to improve where you are at that particular moment in time to get you ready for that move into another school. But you know, The only reason why I'm asking, Steve, and I'm going to be a bit controversial here, <laughs> So I hope you don't mind. Nope. Uh, I was on a course a while ago and one of the leaders who was on that course referred to experienced teachers as archaic. And yeah. I was kind of disappointed because obviously I've been in the profession 17 years. I now also fit into that category. <laughs> and so no. um, what are your thoughts on that, Steve? Should people be, um, you know, calling experienced teachers archaic? And should they? No. Not at all. No, it's unprofessional, I, I, right? <laughs> absolutely. You know, and I learnt. I think I learnt certainly from when I was at Oaks Park. You know, thinking back to a few appointments I made, um, I think you you just consider everything. And I try and be really. You know, I don't go in with any prejudice or that or any bias. You know, I can give you examples of people who have applied for jobs, who have been in their current role a long time at a particular school. And people say, well, they've been in their own that school too long. They've not got the wider experience. And then I can point to people who have not been in a school a long period of time, and yet, yet they've done a lot in that school. I, I think you just have to judge each application on its merits and try not to be prejudiced in any way. Because, you know, I can give examples of people who have moved on to headship, have been in a school for a long period of time and then go on to be very successful at headship. Right, Steve, we're going to stop there for a moment because we're going to head over to the news. Um, but then after that, I've got lots more questions to ask you. So I hope you don't mind. OK, no problem. <laughs> Great. Thank you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, 
articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Stevewoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1,360 pounds in bursary terms and conditions apply find out more at stevewoods.co.uk if you're listening to this then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves that's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care we need people like you to help us achieve even more with us you'll be given all the resources and support you need offered a clear path to career progression and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Money raised through changes to family allowance in Guernsey is now being invested in cultural activities for children in the island's primary schools, according to a report from ITV News. The changes approved in 2020 have provided £150,000 which can be used for cultural enrichment to give children experiences different from those they might get in the classroom. This has included an interactive science roadshow called the Science Dome, which toured the island schools so children can learn about places and environments around the world. Kim Hutchinson, Head of Primary Leadership and Development, said, The initiatives help children deepen their understanding of the world around them. In Scotland, a consultation is being launched on statutory guidance on school uniform, intended to bring down cost and address equality issues. In an article in the TES magazine, it is reported that the Scottish Government say the guidance aims to remove the barrier to participation in learning that it says is caused by school uniform issues. Submissions need to be in by the 14th of October and the consultation process seeks to gain the views of pupils and states that the guidance will not seek to abolish uniform but instead wants to promote equality. The guidance also seeks to avoid the need for uniform to be purchased from expensive specialist retailers. Lancaster is one of the cheapest cities to enjoy student life, 
according to an article in the Lancaster Guardian. It has been named as the ninth cheapest city in the UK, costing an average of £156.20 a week. The cheapest city is Wolverhampton, with an average of £120.90 per week. The analysis conducted by the tutoring expert Superprof examined every university location across the UK to determine where students can live at the lowest cost. It was based on cost of living factors such as the price of weekly student accommodation, as well as weekly costs of alcohol, fast food, coffee and taxi fares. The third most affordable city for students with an average weekly spend of £134.90 is Aberdeen. Speaking to the fifth global conference on the elimination of child labour, Dennis Signolo, Director of Education International's African Regional Office in Ghana, said education is the most powerful weapon you can use to eliminate child labour. Signolo noted that teachers are the ones who identify those out of school and who take action, so investment in teachers was a key priority. He acknowledged that the pandemic had been a huge setback in the fight to reduce child labour, but also acknowledged the impact of natural disasters and challenging economic circumstances. The conference will end with a published document detailing the call to action on Friday. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to talk about a couple of shortcuts and hacks that can make life a little easier. This may not be as innovative as some of my past life hacks for teachers, like drinking noodles, but here are a couple of things that may make a difference to your use of media in the classroom. First up, if you aren't already riding it, get on the Wakelet Wave. Wakelet is a free way to save, organise and share content create collections of web pages, videos, and basically anything with a web address under one topic. Once done, you have a shareable link to your collection. Use it to organize your lesson, flip a lesson, or create revision collections, just to throw a few ideas out there. This next hack is one of my favorites. I love using YouTube to support learning. Not only can it help keep pace in a lesson, but also it's a great reference afterwards for pupils to refer to. My biggest gripe with it though, is that pesky advert you can't skip that always decides to play when you're in full flow. Here's a secret that works nearly all of the time. When preparing your lesson, you will have watched the clip anyway to ensure it's appropriate. So just before you copy the link into your presentation or wakelet, type this on the end, and T equals one. That's the ampersand or the wiggly and lowercase t equals and the number one. Now copy the URL with and t equals one on the end and your clip will start one second in. Not missing any content but skipping the adverts at the start. No need to thank me. Show your gratitude with a follow on Twitter. Check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed, follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio uh welcome back um i'm here this morning discussing uh interview um tips and tricks for head teachers um and um i'm discussing this with steve wilkes this morning um whilst the news was on i was actually uh, really interested in some of the things that i i found previously i'll bring steve back on in a minute but some of the questions that um i was wondering what kind of questions come up at interview level and these are some examples so what strategies would you use to support a member of staff who 
performance is not reaching acceptable level. What does effective leadership look like to you? How would you go about achieving successful parental engagement? And why do you think it's important? And it goes through this list of lots of different questions. And it's quite useful because I think when you are going for an interview, um, I remember one of my mentors right at the beginning when I was doing my PGC, he gave us a list of about 100 questions. So that not that we were like, you know, over preparing our answers, but we had an indication of what might come up. So one of the uh, other questions might be, how would you monitor the standards throughout the curriculum? What values can you bring to the role of head teacher? Um, what do you think the teaching staff and senior leadership team are looking from the head teacher? Uh, and other things like, you know, whole school things, how would you see the school tackle the problem of pupil premium pupil disadvantage and the attainment gap um, and so forth. There are lots of different types of questions you can get. Um, and obviously, um, when we were discussing the in-tray exercise and things that um, you can take part in, one of the questions we discussed earlier was about financial management. Um, and one of the things that they might ask is what what are some of the financial challenges your school has faced and how have you managed them? And then obviously in that response, you would talk about, you know, maybe talk sitting on the governing body, maybe managing division budgets uh, and so forth. So those are all interesting kinds of questions and things you need to think about when applying for a headship role. Um, Steve. Steve, can you hear me? Are you there? Okay, just one moment. I'm just going to see if the mute is working. Hello. Okay, we've lost Steve for a minute. I'm sure he'll be back soon. <laughs> He's probably taking a break as well. Um, okay, um, one of the things that I've um, wondered, obviously for female uh, leaders, there is a difference between female leaders uh, and male leaders in terms of the gender pay gap. I was wondering, is there anyone in the audience who has any questions about anything related to that? Please message in if you have got any questions. So I've attended, I, I'm going to continue, I attended a couple of courses uh, and actually they were very beneficial courses and um, one of them was a leadership course and one of them was from Women Ed and they were talking about how it's really important to negotiate pay um, and one of the experiences that I've had in the past at a middle leadership level is that um, I've gone into a, a negotiation um, and we've agreed on something and um when it's come back it hasn't been followed through and that was kind of hard for me to deal with um when i was younger um and it, it's never happened before because obviously i've been into a school and, and i've always done things uh, professionally um but for some reason this school um it didn't happen in that way um and so that happens to uh, female leaders quite a lot they go into a school and they they try to negotiate or they're not sure how to negotiate. And one of the things that I would say to you is um, something that somebody said to me from Women Ed is that when you are negotiating pay, um, make sure that you 
when you're filling in the application form, don't tick the box that says um, what is your current salary and fill in a figure because that is like a, a technique to uh, prevent people from um you know, uh, reducing your pay. And, you know, there is this huge gender pay gap. And uh, part of the reason why they say is because they feel that, you know, women obviously clearly don't work as hard as men <laughs> or they don't feel that women have got the experience uh, that they should. So it's really important to think about uh, pay there as well. Um, how do you negotiate? Uh, one of the good ways of negotiating that I've been given is by not writing that figure down and then actually asking for what you believe is your worth and taking time to think about carefully whether you want to respond. So you don't have to respond straight away. One of the things that I've been told is that you take your time and you say, right, okay, thank you very much. I'll think about that and get back to you. Um, you are in charge. Steve, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you Hi. hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. We were just yeah. talking about negotiating pay for women. And I was just saying, giving some experiences that I've had on how to negotiate pay and things like that. Can you, you know, there is this gender pay gap between um, male and female, uh, you know, head teachers. And, you know, can you give us examples of, you know, tips and tricks that a, a female leader might use to negotiate the right pay for them, especially for the size of the school uh, and, you know, the leadership role that they're taking on? Well, well if they're applying for a headship, the, um, the, the salary band is normally within the advert. And um, I, I was going to talk generally about this because I think it's really important that you clarify to the chair of governors what your expectancy or whoever you're talking to what your expectancy is of the pay so for example um say a job advert is advertised on a, a scale of 25 to i think 31 it's a seven point differential where where would you expect to be paid on that range now obviously you've got the issues you've just mentioned but sometimes there's an issue where a deputy head of a large school is applying for a, a, a headship of a smaller school and there's not much difference between the pay that they're currently getting and the pay that's advertised. And I, I just think with all of this, you don't want to leave it right till the end. During this process, you need to clarify with the chair of governors what your expectation is of the salary. Okay. And um, listen, presumably um, you're ambitious and you want the top end of the salary. Have you got any tips for negotiation? How, Which is the best way to negotiate that with them? Because you're happy with the school, the school's happy with you. Um, you know, they've made you an offer. And the best thing I've been told is to wait until they've made you an offer and then negotiate salary. So um, you've just said that do it during the process. What, what's the well, best way to do it? Yeah. Uh, perhaps it's different here, but I like to think that at the end of the process that the governors have got the situation where they've got these candidates and they are able to make an offer to a candidate not taking into consideration all the circumstances. Personally, when I was a, and again, perhaps you may or may not agree with this, but, but when I was ahead, when I was appointing people, I wanted to have everything on the table before both people made their decision. And I didn't like negotiating at the end because I felt, you know, 
just, just say, for instance, you had two candidates who were quite close and you'd offer one of them the job and then they suddenly say, you know, well, I, I want X thousand pound more than was actually offered. I'd be thinking, well, I'll go back to the other candidate then. So, so I just think it's really, I understand what you say, but I think it's really helpful if both sides know exactly what's on the table, what the offer is, you know, uh, and what you expect. Okay, so I, I, my recommendations would be then um, just see how the interview goes and take it from there and whatever yeah. you feel comfortable with doing it that way. Steve, can you, can you finish off with your top tips for applying for a senior role like headship and is there any other information that you think people need? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I would say a lot of the stuff we've said applies to all jobs as well, you know, about the application form, making it relevant, meeting the person spec, making sure the school is right and things like that. Yeah, in terms of applying for headship, first of all, I think, you know, is getting the factors outside of it right. So what, you know, the the job you're applying for, does it suit your family circumstances? Does it suit you know, where you're living at the moment. So make sure, you know, the things outside that you, you value and are important are right for you. You know, some people may be happy traveling an hour and three quarters to a, a job. I would never, ever do that and never wanted to do that for various different reasons. Um, so in terms of the top tips, I would say really do your research about the school to make sure that as far as you can tell, that it's the right school for you. Talk to as many people as you can. And school websites now have got lots and lots of different information on there that you can look at to try and make a judgment about whether it's the right school to you. So talk, do your research. Make sure you, you've get a, a, a good quality application. So it's two pages of A4 directed towards the school. And, you know, because what you've got to try and do is put it in the mind of the gut, you're applying to that school. And when you're at the interview, you've got to take on the mindset that that school is going to be yours. And you're talking about the school you're applying to and how you're going to make, you know, fit into that school. And the other thing I would say that in terms of a tip, it is a fit. So, you know, you've got to be right for the school. They've got to be right for you. So sometimes you might be the best candidate in many respects but you're not the right candidate for that school. Just to give you an example, the first question, if I meet the governing body, is I say to them, so you, you want a new head teacher, what type of head teacher do you want? And that depends on where the school is. If the school is a really good school, everything, you might need someone to tinker with it a little bit, but they still want it to carry on as it is. One headship I did last term, I said, do you want some sort of radi radical chat? No, 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 that's the last thing we want. We want it to continue in this sort of smooth upward trajectory. But then you go to another school and they, it needs to be changed quickly. So that requires a different type of head from someone who's going to take it on a, a, a sort of slow upward tra trajectory. So I think the important point is that, you know, try and make sure it's the right school for you. But if at the end of it, you don't get the job, get the feedback and then try and put it uh, and, and I think that is really important if you can get some good feedback from the school as to why you weren't successful, then when you're applying for your next post, it may be that you can put some of that feedback into operation. But I think it's really important to understand if you think as a deputy, you're going to go to your first headship post and get a headship. I don't think there'll be too many people that do that.
Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is a fear. And sometimes uh, it can be hard when you're on the other end because obviously you really wanted a role. And when the people have said to me loads of times, when you are looking for jobs, it, it is a case of not just the school wanting you, but you also deciding Absolutely. whether you actually yeah. want to work for the school because you might go in there. And like I said, you know, some people move quickly. Um, I've, I've known people who've been in senior, senior leadership roles who've moved within the space of a year and pro presumably because they thought that the school wasn't right for them. Um, but you don't know until you get in there. And so you have to think about this quite carefully before you make those decisions. Any last points, Steve? Well, no, I, I think the, the other important thing is I think you've just got to be really confident in your own ability. You know, if you want to do this, when you go to a headship interview, you know, you've got to be really confident and display that confidence to, to the members of the governing body panel because they're looking and saying, are you going to be a leader in your school? Uh, and, I, you know, you do have to promote yourself during the interview. And some for some people, that's not natural for them. But you do have to promote yourself, all, all the qualities that you have to offer. And you've got to, you know, you've got to go into that interview and give it everything if you want that job. Yeah, and um, I do have uh, another question that I've just... Um remembered that is really really important because somebody mentioned this to me ages ago you're going to be a head teacher being in the right senior leadership team is important as well um because sometimes you can end up in a school where the senior leadership team isn't working effectively yeah yeah uh, and that is really important i went to a headship interview once i remember it a long time ago and i thought if I get this job, I've got to work with the two deputy heads there. And I just could not see me doing that. And I withdrew from that post. So, yeah, that's one of the things as a head, you've got to go in there and try and get a good idea about your leadership team, because they're going to be the people that are supporting you the most. And therefore, you know, that's another important part of the day. If you can meet some of the leadership team to see whether they're going to be the sort of people you can work with, because that is really important. Uh, but uh, and also to see what their qualities are to try and get an assessment of that because it's got to complement what you do now once you're in post if you get opportunities come up to appoint senior leaders then that's a different task because what you need to look at then is look at what your strengths and qualities are and try and complement them with people who are good at the things that perhaps you're not so you know, uh, and I think that's really important what you've said there about the leadership team in a school. It's not just, uh, you know, I don't agree with the sort of approach of the, uh, you know, the head out there on there. It is a team approach and the head has got to manage that leadership team. And it's about getting the best out of all members of that team and, and having people in that team who are, you know, good at particular aspects of the, the role. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm only remembering from my, my own journey when I was a teacher. I remember one of my deputy heads at that time. I think it when, was when I was at Ilford County, which was in East London. And I remember him saying to me that he went to a role uh, for an interview. And I think at that time he went for another deputy head role. So he was just going to move over. And he said, I can't imagine myself ever working with that person. And I remember mm. it quite vividly because I never understood how would you even know whether you could work with that person or not. It wasn't until yeah. that I went to an interview myself <laughs> that I just knew straight away that I clashed 
clashed with this person yep. and I was like there's no way I would ever be able to work with this person no. you, you and do. I withdrew and I withdrew from the interview but I up until then as a young teacher Steve I didn't yep. understand what experienced teachers were telling me no <laughs> yeah it is interesting as I say you do get a lot from from you know visiting the school and just the way that people treat you and talk to you you know from the moment you get into a school the way that you're dealt with in reception says a lot yeah. about the school as i'm sure I, you know do you know what i think our values are still the same 17 yeah. years <laughs> because i still have the same things like whenever i walk into a school the way that you're spoken to by reception the way that staff talk to each other you know the, the whole atmosphere and culture of a school you can see it straight away and um people sometimes think i'm crazy when i mention this stuff but i'm glad you said that because that means i've been well trained steve <laughs> No, no, and also I when I go into I go into a number of different schools and speak to a number of different people, and yes. and I can give you examples of schools where where they all speak really positively about mm. the school, and, and then you pick up other areas where some of the staff could be quite negative. So yeah, it's not you know you do pick it up quite quickly because you know if people have got something against the school they don't really say they're quite happy to talk to people and say what they think when you know if you're walking around the school but yeah yeah you do pick it's 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 really interesting you you pick up you know not only the 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 staff relationships but just walking around the school and you can look into classrooms you you see what the general atmosphere is around the school and just to finish off, the um, the question that I asked you about student panel interviews, because obviously this was a hot take on Twitter, yeah. um, I, I actually found a, not just student panel interviews, but also student tours. I actually found a, a recent interview that I went for for a senior leadership role. I found a lot of information out from the students, yeah. so much so that when it came to asking a lot of questions before putting an application, I had so much information that I actually didn't put in an application because I could tell straight away the values of that school were not aligned with my values. Um, and it was simple things that the kids were speaking about and telling me as they were going on a tour. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it, when you are doing, when you are going into schools and when you are applying for schools, um, you know it is important to question them and like you said the kids do feedback eventually as well about you know what happened so just uh, be careful when you go on those tours yeah, and but, panel but interviews they're very honest normally the students aren't they they're very honest yeah. uh you know and a lot of them are very loyal to their schools and speak you know, very highly of their schools yeah and they do, they speak very highly, but also, it gave, like, I'll give you an example. So, for example, I mean, you know me, Steve, my background's computer science, IT, yep. business. And so, for me, uh, I want to be in a school that is up to date with facilities and resources, uh, you know, and technology, um, you know, to, uh, you know, you know using evidence-based research and making sure that everything's in place. And one of the things that they told me is that when they went into lockdown, you know, the kids didn't do any work at all oh. because there was no, you know, and this school was highly regarded. Like yeah. it, it had a good yeah. presence on social media, um, you know, 
people have written books about the school and things like that and it just made me realize that you know what just be careful what you see on social media what you see in terms of marketing about schools is not actually correct until you actually visit the school so reputation yeah so don't don't base it on reputation at all because I was quite disappointed because the person who was leading that school uh, is a well-known author and it just didn't match up with what I was seeing in reality so yeah those are my final thoughts Steve, thank you so much for coming on today. It's an absolute pleasure to host you all the time um, that you're here. And you've given us a wealth of guidance and experience today. So really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Thank you very much. Great. Okay, um, that's it for today. Um, We've got um, lots of hosts coming on uh, this afternoon, so please do stay tuned to Teachers Talk Radio. Um, You can tweet us at TT Radio 2022 if you have got any comments to make about any of our shows that we broadcast. And I shall see you again in two weeks' time. Take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.